Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that explores the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. I am Bert Dreher, Chairman of the Department of Diagnostic, Molecular, and Interventional Radiology at the Mount Sinai Medical Center and the Icon School of Medicine, as well as a past president of the Radiologic Society of North America. I cordially invite you to sit back and relax as we journey through chest and cardiac imaging through the lens of the field's leading experts. And now, from the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City, New York, it is my pleasure to introduce your hosts, Adam Bernheim and Michael Charlie. Welcome to Cardiothoracic Imaging. I am Adam Bernheim, and I'm joined by Dr. Mike Chung. For me, these past uh, two weeks of June have been pretty uneventful, but, um, but Mike, you have some very exciting news to share. Yes, my wife, Jean, and I, we um, just had our first baby boy, uh, little Silas Chung, uh, and I am very tired, Adam. Well, congratulations to you, Mike. And even with uh, such an exciting life event, you know, we don't miss a beat on this podcast. So here we are on June 15th, um, where we have our next show with um, a special guest from Texas, Dr. Sonia Abaro. Yes, it's our pleasure to host Dr. Sonia Abaro today. Uh, Dr. Abaro is a professor of radiology and the current chief of the cardiothoracic imaging division at UT Southwestern. Uh, he is also the chief of the cardiothoracic imaging section at Parkland Health and Hospital System in Texas. He's originally from Germany and received his degree there. And before making his way towards Texas, Dr. Abara was the director of the clinical cardiac imaging section at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And he was the director of education for the cardiac magnetic resonance and computed tomography section. He has authored and co-authored more than 200 peer-reviewed publications, including numerous textbooks and several book chapters. It is our pleasure to... Uh, welcome, Dr. Sunny Abara. How are you doing today, Dr. Abara? Oh, thank you very much. I'm doing great, and uh, it's such a pleasure to be talking with both of you. Maybe we just wanted to start by learning a little bit about you and, and where you're from and how you ended up becoming a physician and a radiologist. Okay. Um, all right. Well, let's go way back. I'm uh, born and raised in Germany, as you probably can tell from my accent, in Hamburg, Germany. Uh, my father is a physician himself who trained uh, in Syria, where he was raised, and came to Germany to do orthopedic surgery residency and fellowship. And then he got stuck in Germany. He met my mother, who is a German lady, and um, they ended up running an orthopedic surgery office out of the city of Düsseldorf, where I grew up for most of my years. That's where I also went to medical school. You know, as a as a medical student in the last year, which is in Germany, year six, it's like an internship. I went for one third of that year to Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. And that's why I gained an interest in um, doing some more training um, abroad. Um, I just thought the systems are different and it's very intriguing to me. Um, so um, I applied for residency and, and got into residency. I went back to Germany to graduate from medical school and then to do a year and a half of what's considered an internship back then that 
that was in vascular surgery, in the Department of Vascular Surgery and Renal Transplantation in the University of Düsseldorf. So it did a lot of aortic cases, some, some cardiac on pump, but most of them uh, off pump uh, orders and, um, you know, fem pop bypass grafts and so forth. Um, in addition to all the renal transplant cases that happened at the university. And then I started my residency in Georgetown University. And perhaps uh, let me tell you why, why I'm still in the United States. It really it started with, we had a little locker room where you could hang your white coat. And there was a, uh, there was a, one of those cork boards where announcements were made. So back then we didn't get emails, we got memos which is basically to the young people out there, an email printed on paper <laughs> that in this case with, with a push pin was pinned to that board. And that particular one that I saw one day was a research, uh, clinical research fellowship award program where they were looking for people that were interested in research and to participate uh, in that um, award program, and the winner would receive $50,000 towards a uh, clinical research fellowship. Um, so I was intrigued. Um, I threw my hat in the ring. I ended up being the nominee. Um, each side was allowed one nominee. I was the nominee from Georgetown University, and um, I went to to uh, RSNA to meet with the other uh, finalists. There were 10 finalists, and um, Boy, was I humbled. They were all very smart people. 100% of them were smarter than I. They knew much more about MRI than, than I knew or still know today. They're really fantastic people. For some strange reason, though, these guys selected my article. Um, we all had to go to RSNA and write a review article on the latest research that was presented there. So I, I got the nod there. I got the fellowship. Um, it was a... Uh, you know, uh, an enabling fellowship because basically to my future employer, I would come for free. And uh, one of the judges was Tom Brady, uh, who uh, was the head of cardiac imaging at Mass General Imaging at the time, um, originally a nuclear uh, medicine uh, physician. Um, he was heading that department there. They had Udo Hoffman already there as a resident, as a research fellow, visiting research fellow at the time. Um, and Marsh Ferencik was there. And uh, they were doing, actually, by the time I came, they had done five animals, five pigs, where they, um, an, an infarct model that they then uh, imaged. They published that paper, looked great. Um, there was no clinical work going on. Uh, back then, that was 16 slice cardiac CT. What year, so was, I ended this, up, what year was this back then? What, um, uh, that would have been 2001 or 2002. Mm -hmm. uh, so soon... After my arrival, the 64 slice scanners came, and of course we we would have one um, at MGH. And um, before that, even um, we had a, a guy come as a research fellow uh, for a, a year. He ended up being there, I think, more than a year. Um, and that fellow's name was Stefan Achenbach. He was there as a a research only fellow, a research fellow, so he couldn't do clinical work. I graduated. I became faculty there. Um, at MGH. So I was at the time for a year or so, the only clinical faculty. So all the cases would go through me, but our volume was ridiculously low. Year one, I remember after the 64 slicer came, we did 100 cardiac CTs. Wow. Uh, you know, a year, that's like um, one every three days or so, or a little less than that. 
But believe it or not, I was tremendously proud uh, at the end of that year to have such a high number back then of clinical cases. Uh, so that was a wonderful experience because um, I got to engage with so many uh, uh, very interesting people, many of which are leaders in the field now. And a lot of trainees came through MGH um, that I see now uh, and meetings as leaders in the field. It's really um, rewarding uh, to see the success of, of, of so many people that were associated you know, with our shop uh, back there. And I can tell you, I learned from each and every single person that came through, whether it was somebody who's already established world leader like Stefan Achenbach, or whether it was somebody who never had done a cardiac CT, who you wanted to know about it and wanted to become a leader and ended up becoming a leader. Mm. Um, you know, I learned from each and every fellow um, that rotated through us, visiting physician um, or resident or visiting cardiologist or medical student coming through our shop. And I still do today. I, th I think that when I pass through MGH, you probably learned from me what not to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I learned from you as I do from, from everybody. It was uh, really wonderful. I, I actually think the, the first time I met you was at MGH, but then I had the chance actually to visit you a couple times in Dallas and CUT Southwestern, which is, which is really an incredible institution. So you've been there for, for the last uh, four or five years at this point. And I, I just wanted to, to ask you for our listeners who maybe haven't had the chance to visit UT Southwestern. Southwestern, just to describe a little bit what chest and cardiac imaging is like at your institution, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about your fellowship program. Yeah, okay. Well, UT Southwestern is a phenomenal place. It has undergone a tremendous transformation in the last maybe eight years or so, or nine years. Um, right around then, um, a relatively new president, Daniel Kodolski, who is a, a, a Harvard transplant, um, had hired a radiologist from Beth Israel Deaconess, Neil Rofsky, the author of that big Rofsky and Rubin uh, book on MRA, 3D uh, MRA uh, in the body. Um, so Neil has done a phenomenal uh, job in, in leading this department and helping it grow, grow to the full uh, potential. At the same time, the institution had a phenomenal transformation. Just a couple highlights is in that time we have we have gone from not having a cyclotron to having a cyclotron that's now producing isotopes that are being used for, for imaging. Thinking even bigger, there are two new hospitals, $2.3 billion worth of new hospitals that have opened up. And I'm looking out my window and I see a, a big outpatient building that is has just opened up. And behind it, one of the new hospital buildings is already being enlarged. Mm. It was so mm. successful. It went to capacity in record time and they're adding 50% capacity to it. So with that uh, comes state-of-the-art technology. Uh, our patient volume is increasing, so we are hiring. Um, our fellow and our faculty complement has increased, so we're looking for both fellows and faculty to join us. Now, the fellowship here, um, we have two fellowships. Uh, um, as of this year, we have a cardiac, dedicated cardiac imaging fellowship, and a cardiothoracic imaging fellowship, something we previously would have called a chest fellowship, except that we have a substantial portion of cardiac MRI and cardiac CT as part of it. Not unsimilar to perhaps MGH that, um, Adam, you're familiar with. We have a joint program where we have cardiologists and radiologists train our um, uh, cardiac 
fellows or the fellows when they are on their cardiac rotation. Uh, state-of-the-art equipment. We're doing all interventional procedures here. So you get to, you know, look at atrial appendages for closure devices, and all kinds of valve interventions and so forth. So um, it's a really awarding, rewarding experience. We have a dedicated cardiac reading room, um, which is centralized because we cover patients from both uh, hospitals. We have uh, on the CT side, the, the fun thing is we have state-of-the-art equipment from multiple vendors. We have dual-source scanners, third and second-generation dual-source scanners. We have um, whole uh, hard, white detector coverage uh, CT scanners. And we have spectral detector CT scanners. So the flagships really from uh, from three of the major vendors. And we have four of the major vendors, four of the four major vendors represented here. So it's an opportunity for people to gain experience with all vendors' system, which comes in really handy if you were to say move on to a place that may have a different vendor than the you know the the one vendor you, you may have used at other programs that uh, tend to have a single or perhaps two vendors for cardiac uh, imaging. I think what's most striking about um what you just said is that you have the radiologists and cardiologists working in tandem, and uh, I think for us coming from a place like Sinai where that's happening every day, I think it's really invaluable for the, the fellows and trainees, uh, as you kind of hinted at. Um, right. You, yeah, you have a phenomenal amount of resources there. It's, it's a, as you said, with the two large, new, beautiful hospitals, one of the things I remember about visiting UT Southwestern is that there's an entire shuttle system that you need in order to get around from one building to another building. Just the campus of, of the hospital itself is so enormous that it's, it's remarkable. We live here in New York City where the amount of space is so confined, you know, to have, uh, you know, the amount of space, the amount of resources that you could do. It's really like unlimited potential what you can do there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's indeed the case. And we realized that this is both a, a blessing and in a way a curse. So um, radiology has actually become a leader in the institution um, in um, using virtual tools. Um, so we have really fancy state-of-the-art conference rooms and we travel virtually all the time. Um, if you invite people, you invite a conference room. With that, you automatically have a Skype-type um, conference. All the screens have um, have cameras. We don't fiddle with HDMI cables anymore to project from your laptop. We do it through, through web-based services or, or your telephone or your iPad, whatever you have. Um, we can project it and share it across um, the department. And it's being used. And it's, it's really... Uh, shown how radiology can be a leader. And I must say, I personally developed too. And I copied that kind of setup at home. So I'm looking at my screen right now as we record this, which is a 43-inch 4K screen with a 24-inch screen next to it with a relatively small footprint. Um, but it can be transformed into a PAX workstation, you know, by clicking a, a couple of uh, buttons. And it's not inferior to a fully-fledged PAX workplace. So having the space has a challenge. If you have a meeting and you want to provide lunch and somebody calls in, they can't get lunch. <laughs> but we're able to engage um, everybody without the need uh, uh, to travel. Kind of as you hinted at, I mean, the technology has just evolved so much even since you first started your clinical practice. Um, where you see cardiac imaging now in 2019, um, what has it been like for you to experience this evolution personally within the field over the past several years? And do you feel like it's just endless at this point, like there's more to go? 
Yeah, well, the, the evolution has been uh, fantastic, and um, I love it. Uh, one of my uh, former fellows, who now is the clinical director of cardiac CT um, at MGH, uh, quoted me. He caught me saying, uh, looking at one of the Leonardo 3D workstations, that's one vendor's 3D workstation, mm -hmm. looking at a four-dimensional beating heart um, and being in awe looking at that technology, he caught me saying, I can't believe they pay me to do this because it's it's just so awe-inspiring and fun. I would do it without pay. Um, thankfully, he didn't say it to my boss and they continued to pay me. <laughs> uh, but um, I was amazed about the technology even when it, uh, when it just started. Now, when I started out... Um, a, a guy named Kuhn Niemann created the first four-dimensional image of the heart that was published, I believe, in Lancet. He, uh, he did. And he told me it took him two days um, to generate those images. This is something that now automatically happens with less control by the user, but automatically within seconds. Um, technology has evolved tremendously, both the, the software and the hardware. And Cardiac CT in particular, when I started out as a resident, I remember the buzz that they had at RCNA when they said that now you can get CT in a coronal and sagittal plane. And people were wondering how you can turn the gantry by 90 degrees or how did they do it? And, <laughs> and the key was the slices had become so thin that you could do it with post-processing. Now it's so obvious to all of us, but back then it was a big deal. People mm -hmm. were reading off of film. We were printing CTs on film in bone windows, lung windows, and soft tissue windows. And you had to follow your, you know, your bowel or whatever from image to image. You would print 20 images on one sheet of film. Um, so I started out with CT scanners being one big table where the keyboard was part of the table, a trackball was part of the table, and the monitor was coming out of a little little bulge on the on the table all in, in one big machine and that's how they looked back then so the computing power the software the hardware has come so far it's really uh, wonderful to have been able to witness that transformation of imaging um, i know that the evidence that was developed at the same time has also been transformative when i first started out all evidence, there were, you knew every single paper that was published because they were like six a year. And they were all about accuracy, maybe image quality, single center trials. And so basically, through, throughout my career, I was able to follow the, the quality of evidence um, evolution uh, from single center trials to meta-analysis to the first uh, multi-center trials, uh, multi-center accuracy trials at first, and then uh, the first prospective randomized control trials made it um, into the field. So that was really wonderful to see. And, and today I can tell you we're having something like 800 papers published in the cardiac CT world. Um, I don't think anybody can read all of them and be aware of all of them today. Very different from having maybe six publications a year in the early years. In your daily work, when you're reading your cardiac CTs, um, do you have a general approach when you come when you try to tackle a scan, or do you just uh, rely upon instinct at this point, or do you have like a general search pattern? Could you talk to the listeners about that? Yeah. So how long it takes to read a cardiac CT really depends on image quality, and for that, 
acquisition is the most important. So I don't start in the reading room. Um, I start with appropriate patient section. So as opposed to perhaps, say, PECT, which is a post hoc analysis of images that came to you without you having to do anything, mm -hmm. cardiac CT, we like to be proactive, review the indications, um, protocol the cases according to the indications, and ensure that where needed, we have optimal technique for the scanner um, and uh, optimal medication use. Because it's the, the, the GIGO principle, garbage in, garbage out. If, if you have bad image quality, it'll be hard for you to make sense of it. Perhaps the most important thing to keep in mind when you read a cardiac CT is that you don't do it just in the reading room. You have to be ready to go back to the control room, to the scanner, to re-reconstruct um, after EKG editing or additional phases if there are areas um, uh, that have motion artifact, or re-reconstruct sharper kernel images um, or thinner slices if you have areas uh, where there's calcium, or re-reconstruct if you have a CNR challenge and say an, uh, uh, an obese patient uh, where your CNR is, uh, is not good enough, you would do thicker slices with some overlap. So you have to be ready for this back and forth. Um, and then I'm trying to be very systematical because otherwise I am at risk of forgetting things. So mm -hmm. for the coronary arteries, we do use CAD rads. It's a reporting system that is similar to BIRADS um, in, in that it gives you an an ordinal, uh, ordinal data um, where the higher the CADRATS numbers, the worse off you are in terms of obstructive uh, lesion. It helps the reader know what you mean. And the reason I say that is, uh, let's mention Brian Gosharja one more time. He had an idea for a paper, which I was making fun of at first. He's like, um, let's see what our referring physicians and ourselves think and impressions uh, means in a radiology report. And the paper was published in, I believe, ACR, and it was interpreting the interpretations. And it turned out that it wasn't as clear as we thought to our referring physicians. It wasn't even as clear as we thought to ourselves. So um, that really illustrated why there is a need for standardized reporting uh, uh, through a system such as CADRATS. Do you start every single impression at UT Southwestern on every cardiac CT for coronaries with a CADRADS designation? No. Uh, our impression is a free text like you would expect from a radi regular radiology report where we say what we think is going on using our regular language. Um, and in addition to that, we do give the CADRADS category. Uh, sometimes it's easier to, to phrase something to get the message across using free text, it, it, you know, there, there are scenarios where CAD rats would not fully explain things. So it's important to us to not restrict the reader in that regards. But in addition to that, we do give CAD rats. That helps the readers to commit to something very specific. Um, so we use a hybrid method, and the first sentence is overall picture. So it could be something like there's non-obstructive coronary atherosclerosis seen throughout all levels, uh, resulting in a CADRATS, uh, in an Agatson score of XYZ. Um, and then we give the CADRATS classification, CADRATS 1 or 2. We're looking at the uh, the consensus doc from the JCCT article in 2016. Uh, what was it like to work with a lot of the, your peers and leaders in the field to kind of produce that document? Was it was it a difficult process? Uh, was it like a labor of love? Like, what was that experience like? 
Yeah, so that process was was headed. Um, the idea was born by Ricardo Curry um, when he was president of the SCCT. He reached out to the ACR, the American College of Radiology, which has produced the other rats f- from the very beginning on. And so the ACR appointed, I was an ACR appointee to that group, uh, appointed a number of um, experts, as did other organizations. Um, and that was really uh, it was really humbling. It was actually phenomenal to see after the initial proposal, um, to see the input that um, all the other leaders had. Um, it, it widened my horizon. Uh, it made me think of things that I wouldn't have thought uh, about myself. Uh, it was also, it was a nice way of seeing how the sausage was made in one of those multi-society guidelines. I, I had done other ones as well. Um, but the ACR um, uh, has has different methods for various uh, appropriateness criteria or guidelines, um, as does the ACC and AHA and SCCT. So this was a, a consensus finding about the method of developing the uh, document and then walking through each step of that uh, development. Um, it was really a wonderful experience um, to see it all coming together in multiple iterations. And, you know, the end product is not perfect and there will be a CADRATS 2, um, perhaps in the not too far future, mm. that, that iterates further and builds upon the strength of the current CADRATS where it totally got it right and perhaps the weaknesses where there may be a, a better way. Thank you for providing a taste of what's to come. I know that there's long rads iterations that are coming in the future. So now it's good to know that we can have a CAD rads iteration as well. Um, just, just switching gears a little bit. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that you began your education and received your medical degree in Germany. Um, we're just curious, how would you compare clinical and academic radiology in the United States with Europe and with Germany? Do you think that there are things that Americans can learn from how things might be done differently there? I think having insight as to how things work in other places is always a plus. There's two things you can learn. One is what not to do, and the other one is what works in a given scenario. But even that second one, what works for somebody, say, in a different country like Germany, doesn't necessarily mean it'll work in a country like the U.S. Um, it, it, It really depends on the environment that you're in. Now, to me, the biggest difference I see in training um, is that in medical school in Germany, it is a much more thorough but theoretical training. Um, the only real embedding of uh, the medical students happens in their last year. There's a, they get a little taste of that uh, in the summers uh, before that, but five years of theoretical learning um, or with a strong emphasis on theory um, more in depth than in, in the four years in the U.S. that I see, um, but people are less able to function when they first get released to a clinical service compared to the U.S. And then um, the residencies are different. There are, as you know, in the U.S. we have perhaps two conferences. When I was a resident, we had two conferences that were dedicated solely to the education of the residents. Um, there was much less of that uh, back in Germany. There are a lot of multidisciplinary conferences where residents may be presenting cases um, or what have you, and they were learning through the discussions that were held there. But there were very few conferences or lectures that were dedicated solely to the uh, educational benefit of just the residents. So they're very different systems. One observation I had when I visited the University of Düsseldorf as a visiting uh, professor uh, last year or 
or perhaps it was the year before that, um, was that there is less subspecialty training in Germany. If you are an attending there, you will find yourself doing much more than just, say, uh, breast imaging um, or much more than just neuro or certainly much more than just chest imaging. Um, if you're a chest imager, perhaps you're more a body or modality imager and you do everything that the modality does or you do the entire body. Um, so less subspecialization um, during clinical work. The residency rotations are different. I believe in that medical school, they had like a six-month rotation block uh, rather than monthly as we have in the United States. Now, I don't know what is better. Um, uh, I truly don't know. Uh, but one big difference I see in um, the end product, a young, a young attending, is that the ones that grow up in Germany at a university, they tend to have already a body of evidence published by the time they become uh, uh, the equivalent of an assistant professor. Um, and that, I think, is enabled by them having these longer rotations, these six-month rotations, and, and they're al allowed to focus during residency, during all four-plus years of residency, they're allowed to focus and be the go-to guy for, say, cardiac MRI. Uh, which is very different in the U.S. Um, it feels more like short of perhaps a focus year that some residencies have. You're covering every single topic that there is, and uh, they're usually one month rotations. Um, and you have an equal or a predefined amount of each of the rotations. So again, different. I don't know if there is one that is that is better. There are some advantages, of course, if you already are the go-to person for chest imaging at a place. You know, perhaps you're ahead in your career. Maybe there are disadvantages. If you're the go-to person in chest because you rotated three, six months blocks on chest, maybe you didn't get as much of something else that may be essential uh, to you. So I cannot commit to, to, to any judgment as to which one is, is better. I do know they are very different systems. You're kind of hinting at it. And maybe Germany or some of the European systems do have an advantage over us, but... Uh, you know, obviously us three, we're, we're very biased for our field, but how do you think that for the future um, we can, you know, create more excitement or interest in this field of cardiac imaging when it comes to radiology trainees entering it? Okay, so I can tell you one thing. There is great hesitation out there. I think roughly 100% of the fellow applicants ask me this question, am I still going to have a job when I'm done with this? Um, the vast majority of them are now leaders in cardiothoracic imaging. Not only do they have a job, they're propelling the field forward. So if you have an interest or a passion for cardiothoracic imaging, go into it. You will do great if you have a passion for it, if you're interested in it. Right now, so people also say, don't do something if, if it's not your number one top pick. Well, in my career, I have, I wasn't set on being a cardiac imager. At some point in my life, I said, cardiac, that sounds crazy. Um, opportunities opened up, and um, I think you got to go for it. If, if, you are, if you have some excitement in, in you for it or some potential excitement, and there is an opportunity, go for it would be my, uh, uh, my recommendation. I would not say that if you hate a field, you should go into the field because there's job security or you can have an academic career in it. Don't do what you dislike. 
Um, but if you like it or say all things else are equal and there's an opportunity in the field, you should definitely go for it. Right now, there is enormous opportunity um, for employment in private practice and academia for chest or cardiac trained people nationwide. We have a shortage. The shortage is just getting worse because we're not producing enough people. There are only relatively few spots. I think a lot of people do have this hesitation or concern. That's why I keep getting this question from our fellows. Will I have a job? I would say you absolutely will have job. There's great job security right now. It's perhaps the hottest field uh, for somebody who is looking for a position. And I don't think it's going to change in the next um, half decade or so, for sure. So if you have an interest in the field, if you want to be a leader, or if you want to have uh, want to be a thought after person in your private practice, um, this is a great field to go into. We're doing a lot of cool new stuff um, with spectral CT, um, with, with uh, cardiac imaging, uh, both cardiac MI and cardiac CT. There's uh, there's vascular imaging uh, in the mix, and uh, there's pulmonary MRI uh, that's becoming bigger. There's mediastinal MRI. So a lot of applications uh, in your future life. Great opportunity. If you are liking it, go for it. If you're between cardiac and one other thing and you like them equally good, you have to ask yourself, is the other thing as hot a field as it is right now uh, in cardiothoracic? Um, and if it isn't, go into cardiothoracic. Uh, once somebody has uh, chosen cardiothoracic, we have a lot of listeners who are either young staff or trainees. As somebody who's been so successful in developing uh, a clinical and academic career at the highest level, do you have any particular advice that you could pass on to uh, maybe young staff or trainees? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, well, follow your passion. If you have a passion for something, do it. There's a number of things that come to mind. First of all, it is a small world. Treat people the way you want to be treated. If you're interviewing some, somewhere and you're picking a different job, um, you know, tell people you're interviewing with why, because we're going to see each other um, for the rest of our lives. Um, and everybody gets your reasons. Uh, trust me, you don't have to make up something. Um, so everybody is a human and um, family is human nature, more money is human nature, um, other, you know, lifestyle, um, you know, it's in human nature. People get your reasons. Uh, so, be, so be honest and open. Um, when it comes to writing something, don't write something just because you want to write something. If you come across a question that's important and unanswered, well, then do your research to answer the question. If you do that, you will do good work. If you're only doing it because you need papers to be you know, promoted, you probably won't excel as much as if you're doing it if you're really after answering that question. If you're into education, um, you've got to think about why you're educating, why it is relevant, and how you want to, to help your peers um, improve their skill. Uh, you know, often at the other end is our patients. We want to ultimately have better patient care. So if your education is focused on giving people skills so they can do a better job with that, I think you're doing uh, the right thing. 
I think that you gave me uh, excellent advice uh, a few years ago. You had an analogy for um, if somebody is trying to be successful in publishing an article, I, 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 maybe you could share with our listeners. I think that you uh, had an analogy, an, an analogy where they shouldn't hold on to, let's say, a paper that has been rejected for too long. Could, could you share maybe some of your advice uh, in uh, maybe uh, being so successful in, in publishing? Yeah, I have made many mistakes in my life and I thought about them because um, I wanted to think about what I can do different going forward. Um, so one is, for example, on for, uh, on single slice CT and appendicitis. I did a, a study. I thought it was really good. I still think it's good using Randers and Aldo phantoms and TLD, uh, which are dos dosimeters, which you could put in with the ovaries are, for example, to measure the ovarian dose from various CT protocols, got rejected by radiology, which rejects 94% of manuscripts, uh, or at least last uh, year, it may be different with the new journals. So that's a one in 20 chance. That doesn't mean your research was bad. I was discouraged. I stuck to it. I didn't resubmit it. And then a year and a half later, I did resubmit it to the next journal. By then, all the appendix protocols, were there were published protocols using multi-slice CTs, and the stuff I did has become obsolete. So if you have a manuscript and um, you send it to the editors and you get something back, think of it like a tennis ball. You always want the ball to be on the other, other side of the net. Okay, just bounce it right back. Um, I have a rule of a week. If you are asked for revisions, if you can do them, revise within a week and send it back. Never have it in your own inbox. That's the worst case for these manuscripts. They start rotting there <laughs> and disintegrate. <laughs> the other thing is don't, don't use excuses like, oh, I'm going to send it to this co-author so they do something with it. I did this so many times. The excuse was to myself. Mm. I gave myself the excuse to not do anything until I hear back from that one person. So you put yourself in a dependency position. So if you can do it yourself, just do it. Like the Nike commercial, just do it. <laughs> the other thing is I have a rule of five. Um, it is there for the right reason. Now, statistically speaking, I mentioned um, radiology, um, which had uh, in a year past one in 20, uh, nearly one in 20 uh papers were accepted, which means 19 were not, right? Is that? Yeah, that's like 6%. Uh, but perhaps in the past, it would be 1 in 10. In other journals, maybe it's 1 in 5. Let's just say the average journal would be 1 in 5 acceptance rate. Mm -hmm. That means you have to send your journal, uh, your manuscript to five journals for it to get accepted, or five manuscripts to one. And that doesn't mean that, that four of the five are clearly not don't don't have any merit and only one has merit they have there's a judgment call the the editors will go like oh we already published on that especially if it were a review article so they want to balance things out so the rule of five is that you have to when you submit your manuscript to a journal don't pick one journal as a group of authors decide on five journals so if you get it back with comments from reviewers and the editors you know which one your next journal is if it got rejected. And then use your one-week rule. Within one week, you have to send it to the next journal. So what I usually tell uh, uh, my, my, my colleagues, my peers that are the first authors is you implement everything that you can easily do within a week. 
if there's some major change that is not where it's not clear to you that the merit changes substantially, um, you you can you know not do that. If there's a major change that really makes a big difference to the merit of the manuscript, you want to go there definitely, and then you send it to the next journal, and ideally you already have uh, the permission slips or uh, the 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 uh, consent uh, signed by the authors. So before the closure of business of the next Friday, you have sent your manuscript onto the next one. And you only allow yourself to be sad or upset when you hit a journal number five. And then you can bring a strategy back up with your co-authors. So, but until then, it's got to be an automatic. And what I tell people is try to feel happy when you get it back as a reject, not so disappointed. Okay, maybe disappointed for a few minutes. But know that you have a strategy and a plan to send it on off to the next one. Um, you, it's like a hot potato. You don't want it on your lap or on your hands. You want it on some editor's hand, either the same editor if they said revise um, or off to the next journal after you made any corrections um, that, that were um, helpful to you for your manuscript. Those are really great words of advice. And I literally just got a rejection email an hour before this talk. So um, I'm going to send that tennis ball back uh, to another journal. So thank you for that. I think uh, a lot of listeners will find that's very helpful. Looking to the, the future of our field, are there any um, things that you see on the horizon that have you particularly excited? Or is there anything that has you concerned about the future of our subspecialty? Um, yeah, so there's a number of things that, that have me uh, excited. Um, so th there's technical development in CT in particular, spectral CT, whether spectral detector or dual source or, you know, rapid KV switching or split beam. Spectral uh, CT is relatively new. We're still trying to figure out where and when it is best usable, but for chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, for example, we're looking into the use and the meaning uh, of it there. Um, the other one is AI. There's a lot of stuff that AI is really not good for, but there's a lot of hype out there. But then there are some applications where it really can uh, make a difference. And we have a, we have a young faculty member here, um, Fernando Kay, who's actually... Uh, coded some algorithms um, for calcium score CTs of the Dallas Heart Study where we have outcomes data. Um, and he estimated the ventricular size, which if you think about it, one of the things we say about calcium scoring is you can't judge the ventricles, right? Because there's no contrast. Um, except you can. And he figured out how to, and he correlated it um, with uh, uh, all kinds of metrics, including uh, outcome metrics, it showed that you can automatically estimate, guesstimate, AI, AI estimate um, the left ventricular volume and size in a, a calcium score CT. So that's but one application where AI can really uh, get incremental information from a study that where we use it, just something very rudimentary, namely the Agatston score uh, itself. So I think that can enhance the field uh, substantially. Um, there is, if you think about a coronary CT, there's a fraction of voxels that we actually use to make the diagnosis. Um, if you use either spectral or AI type information, you can get so much more information. For example, the, the total fat volume in a body 
Um, we never really quantify that, but you can. Um, then there's some other work we are doing. Um, there's a faculty member here, uh, Asha Kandatel, who came to us from Michigan, who's looking at new biomarkers from chest CT. Well, she's she's done a a trial a study, the impact study, where we looked at biomarkers derived from TAVR CTs, chest abdominal pelvis CT, to predict renal failure as the outcome or uh, nephropathy as as the outcome, and wow, we found that there is information that we do not use clinically that can actually predict who will be getting a, a nephropathy after the TAVR procedure. Um, so there is a lot more in the data than we clinically use today. So looking at new biomarkers derived from CT, um, whether you use spectral or AI, um, uh, doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, I think there's a lot more information than we use. So one uh, one way one thing we we um, spearheading are spearheading here at UT Southwestern and any person who comes and joins us will have access to that is CT fingerprinting. Um, this is something that um, we uh, we have a research group with imaging scientists, chemists, physicists, statistician, and and others uh, led by uh, Bob Linkinski, our vice chair of research that created the CT fingerprinting, which is basically a 2D histogram um, for either an organ or a slice or an entire volume, uh, looking at, for each voxel, at the uh, photon electric at the Compton contribution to that particular photon. And it allows you to do a whole lot of things. So one study we're doing that is supported by Mars and A grant, Praveen Ranganath is one of our residents here that will go to fellowship at uh, MGH. Uh, he, through this RSNA grant, is building a phantom that gives us exact amounts of calcium and contrast in the lumen of, of that vessel. And we will be using CT fingerprinting to get a more precise quantification of the calcium, either in the absence, but also in the presence of iodine using CT fingerprinting. So we're getting an additional dimension to, to each voxels that, that we haven't had before, and it will allow us um, to differentiate, to characterize the tissue within that voxel to a degree that, that wasn't possible before. So really uh, exciting on, on so many levels. And that's just cardiac CT. There's cardiac MR, there's pulmonary and so forth. That's really exciting. I think a lot of the, the plaque characterization is, is definitely an area uh, of intense investigation and a lot of exciting things coming. Uh, and the CT fingerprinting is, is really terrific. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, in clinical practice at UT Southwestern, do you use FFRCT? Uh, we don't use it um, currently. Uh, we may be using it in the future. But yeah, currently we use uh, morphology for our uh, stenosis estimation. Do you think that there is, uh, is there a particular reason that, you know, maybe some people are, are hesitant to use it at this point in 2019? Wh where do you think, uh, where do you think we stand with FFRCT overall? Well, there's one uh, FDA approved vendor that provides it. And right now it is an, an elaborate setup. Once you're set up, I guess it's, it's pretty straightforward, but it, it's a mandatory time delay to the diagnosis. Um, you have to have a system where you identify only those people that will potentially benefit from it. Unfortunately, you know, the, the, the accuracy curve, you may have seen that at SCCT, right where we need it the most, it performs less well than, than in the higher obstructive range or in the non-obstructive range. Um, but those are the patients where we really need it the most. 
So there, there are studies that have shown uh, its benefits. So I think it may be coming to a whole lot of places. We are not an early adapter. More important is that it cannot fix your poor image quality. I said in the beginning, um, when you read in the reading room, it's, it's actually not just in the reading room. It starts with patient selection patient preparation and scan acquisition, optimizing the scan acquisition. Again, if you have issues with your image quality, there will be issues with your FFRCT. It may get uh, rejected. Um, so it doesn't compensate for those patients that you would call non-evaluable. So there's no value there. It would give you incremental information for those patients that have potentially obstructive lesions or lower grade obstructive lesions, where then you can determine um, it's its hemodynamic significance, uh, perhaps with incremental information from the FFRCT. Thank you so much. Um, before we close out, is there anything else that uh, you would like to talk about before we finish? Uh, no, I'd, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to chat with you. I enjoyed this. And uh, perhaps a message for anybody who may be considering to go in the field. This is a really rewarding field. Um, I definitely uh, invite you to come join us. It's a great community, as, as I'm sure you've already experienced as you're part of it. Um, both the thoracic imaging community with STR being uh, uh, one of their key meetings uh, and the cardiac communities, NASCI, SCCT, SCMR, they're great, great meetings. It's a great community, very supportive. Um, it's great fun as most people I know really have a passion uh, for what they're doing. So if you're interested in it, go for it. You will be very welcome. If you're looking for training, UT Southwestern is a phenomenal program. It's wonderful clinical experience. Last year, we had 61 um, PubMed-cited uh, articles coming out of our division, so highly academically active. You'll get insights into all aspects of cardiothoracic imaging. So we would love to have you here either as a fellow or if you if you want to join us as a faculty, same thing. You'd be very welcome. It's great fun. Living in Dallas, by the way, is fantastic. Not that New York is, is anything is wrong with that, but um, <laughs> living in Dallas is fantastic. I say that because I'm the German guy who came from Boston and I had no idea how it would be to live in Dallas. I'm convinced now. So that's, that's all I had to say. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you both, uh, Adam and, and Mike. Thank you for listening to Cardiothoracic Imaging, a podcast that journeys through the legends, legacies, and lessons of chest and cardiac imaging. We hope you have enjoyed listening and look forward to seeing you next time.